0: This program is brought to you by the Practicing Law Institute, a nonprofit learning organization dedicated to keeping attorneys, professionals, and accountants at the forefront of knowledge and expertise.
1: Hello, Insecurities listeners. While Kurt and I are away during our summer, Accounting Summer School continues with a rebroadcast of an episode from November of 2020 called A Gap in Your Financial Reporting we take a deep dive into the complex issues regarding accounting fraud and issuer disclosures. Kurt and I discuss the basic tenets of accounting, the securities laws applicable and often charged in accounting fraud matters, and recent cases to demonstrate the SEC's focus and messaging regarding accounting fraud and the people who commit it. We hope you enjoy. The SEC is bringing sexy back to accounting investigations, ran the New York Times DealBook headline on June 3rd, 2013. Peter J. Henning, long-standing author of the White Collar Watch column for DealBook, discussed the renewed vigor from then-SEC Chairwoman Mary Jo White and enforcement co-directors George Kanellis and Andrew Ceresny to pursue accounting fraud. In fact, The Wall Street Journal had reported during the same week that the SEC was deploying cutting-edge software to analyze the wording in the Management's Discussion and Analysis section of public filings to attempt to pinpoint word choices and phrases that may indicate earnings management or other accounting gimmicks. Based on the premise that serious risks or shoddy decision-making by management would be glossed over or spoken of softly in MDNA, Columbia Law professor noted that, as soon as the SEC suggests it's going to look at this in terms of the number of words, lawyers will be more loquacious. Words and disclosures and the tools to analyze them demonstrate one iteration of the never-ending arms race in the investigation of potential accounting fraud. In fact, accounting fraud in modern times is thought to have begun in the 1700s with the South Sea Company bubble. During the War of Spanish Succession, The South Sea Company was promised a monopoly by the British government of all trade in the Spanish colonies in South America in exchange for taking over and consolidating the national debt raised by the war. After the war ended in 1714, trading prospects in the Spanish colonies were limited by the treaty then signed, and trading opportunities continued to disappear as Britain and Spain's relationship was strained throughout the end of the decade. In January 1720, South Sea Company stock traded at a mere 128 pounds, In an attempt to raise public interest in the stock, the directors of the company spread false claims of success and riches on the high seas. Hitting a high of 175 pounds, the British government endorsed the company proposal to assume even more debt in exchange for South Sea Company shares. All told, after the government passed the Bubble Act in July of that year, enshrining those monopoly rights to the South Sea Company in legislation, its stock hit 1,050 pounds per share. But even faster than it had risen, investor confidence waned through the summer and the sell-off was stark. In September, the stock had crashed back to earth at 175 pounds per share, and the trail of investigations, deceit, corruption, and bribery led to the prosecution of many company and government officials. Fast forward to the present, and the SEC is still focused on bringing sexy back to accounting fraud investigations. In September, at a speech at the University of Pennsylvania, SEC Enforcement Director Stephanie Avakian said, quote, We put a sharp focus on financial fraud and issuer disclosure. Integrity and accuracy in financial statements and issuer disclosures are critical to the functioning of our capital markets. Over the past three years, the Commission has brought hundreds of enforcement actions involving virtually all aspects of the financial reporting process. We are not the first to focus on financial fraud matters, but I believe our efforts in this space have made foundational changes that will reap benefits in the future." We'll talk about aspects of the financial reporting process, how they've been and can be abused, and the SEC's continued focus on accounting fraud today on Insecurities. Hello, and welcome to the Insecurities Podcast, helping you stay current on the latest securities, regulatory, and enforcement developments with a practitioner's perspective on the stories you should be following. As always, I'm Chris Ekimoff, and I'm here with my co-host, Kurt Wolf. It's good to be with you, Chris. Well, Kurt, on today's episode, we're finally focusing on something near and dear to my heart, accounting fraud. I'm really looking forward to sharing some of the underpinnings of those issues, hearing a little bit about the regulations and rules that it relate to, and getting your take on some of the accounting fraud cases over the past couple of years.
2: Yeah, Chris, I'm looking forward to this one, too. I mean, I feel like it's been a long time coming, at least from your chair, I'm sure. Uh, you know, uh, we, we both recently attended the, the virtual securities enforcement forum, and I quipped in a tweet. I promise we're not going to go through a bunch of tweets again on this episode. But I, I tweeted at the time that the the financial disclosure and accounting fraud panel was your Super Bowl. And I meant that as a joke. But, you know, we, we let off this episode with you leaning hard into that New York Times <laughs> article. Cool. Amen. <laughs> and, it, you know, it, it, it's funny it, because it actually can be a, a, at least an interesting, if not sexy topic. Um, and not long after that article ran, Andrew Ceresny, who was the SEC's director of enforcement at the time, gave a speech in which he noted about the article, quote, I couldn't stop laughing about both the idea that the SEC was sexy and that the sexiness was due to a focus on accounting fraud, end quote. And I, I honestly, Chris, I'm probably with Ceresny on this one. But but, Ceresny also admitted that the financial reporting and accounting fraud is near and dear to him. And, and as you've mentioned, I know it's near and dear to you too. And it's an interesting topic, don't quote me on that. It's also a, a perennial priority for the SEC, including the SEC's Division of Enforcement. So that's what we're gonna talk about today, financial fraud and issuer disclosure. And Chris, I know you're gonna wanna get in the weeds on this one. I view my job today as saying as little as possible, but trying to like just pull you back a little bit and let's keep this at a
1: level that everyone can understand. Of course, Uh, we need that live Rosetta Stone to translate (laughs) between uh, some of the nuance we've got going on. Exactly.
2: Here's what we've got queued up for for today's episode. Uh, We're going to start with some basic accounting concepts that will uh, sort of lay the groundwork for understanding how folks might bend the rules or even why they might uh, feel compelled to do so. We're going to talk a little bit about the securities laws um, or, or rules that are at issue in, in financial fraud and is- issue or disclosure cases. We're going to give a couple recent examples of how these things play out in an actual SEC enforcement action. Finally, we're going to spend a little bit of time talking about the current uh, messaging from the SEC and what we see coming down the road in the financial fraud and issuer disclosure space. So that's the episode. Let's get to it. <music>
1: I don't want to sound biased here, but it will come off that way, that this topic is so broad and variegated that we could have dozens of programs or podcasts on this, which you know, PLI actually offers. Uh, so if you're interested in any of the, the detail and the nuance we get into today, there, there's a whole host of programs out there to, to whet your appetite related to all of the accounting things that that come to mind. Or you know, just reach out to me directly and I'll be happy to talk your ear off for two or three hours. So if we talk about accounting fraud, right? We've we've got two issues in that very phrase. What is accounting and what is fraud? And, and we've talked a little bit about fraud uh, on the podcast, but accounting really comes down to the financial and economic activity of a business being represented appropriately. And please for the rest of this episode, do not take my statements as any position on accounting or or metrics. Uh, as we're doing a, a very high level job of, of simplifying what we'll be dealing with here today. But when it comes to the accounting equation, which really dictates all of the the business dealings um, that are represented in in quarterly and in annual financial statements, the accounting equation is assets equals liabilities plus owner's equity. Assets are those things on the books that are of value to the business, right? It could be a, a machine or a plant, could be cash in a bank account, right? Things that are measurable and able to provide value to the business. They Range in terms of of tangibility from some of those hard assets, those real property assets we talked about, to intangibles. You know, estimates of of goodwill value of the company, or other derivatives, or, or intellectual property are also listed mm-hmm. as assets. From a liability side, right? To, to flip the coin on the other side, liabilities are those items that a business uh, will have to recognize or pay out to someone else. You know, examples of liabilities being accounts payable. You know, uh, buying on credit terms for for your business, uh, as well as notes payable to, to banks and, and other lenders, uh, and a lot of, of very detailed and complex uh, issues on the liability side as well. So if we start there, assets are the the goods held by the business or, or the value inherent in the business, and liabilities are what is owed on behalf of those assets, you're left with this equity section, owner's equity. And again, you know, oversimplifying it here is really who has skin in the game for how this business operates. If you think about it from a sole proprietor perspective, an individual person would be the business owner and their equity would be the $100,000 they put in, in the business as it started. Uh, also, obviously, from a, a market perspective, shareholders would be those that have value in the owner's equity uh, side of the equation. So between assets, liabilities, and equity, you've got all of the pieces that put together the financial position of the business. And how do we get to know some of the financial positions of the business? That's through their regular reporting. 10Ks, 10Qs, 8Ks. Uh, Many of the listeners are probably very familiar with those, but a brief recap. Uh, 10K is the annual report uh, due for issuers uh, once a year talking about the Previous 12 months, uh, whether they be on a calendar year or fiscal year. 10Q reports relate to each quarter, coming out on a quarterly basis, obviously, to report on the most previous quarter. And and other forms such as 8Ks relate to very specific events or elements uh, that need to be reported on a more timely basis. Uh, Again, an oversimplification, but that's where we get to the accounting information from the business being broadcast to the markets. Uh, And that's really where we see the fulcrum on which accounting fraud litigation and investigations turn so the financial statements included in those reports are really the way the business communicates the economic reality of their performance in the past period and there's a few key assertions that the management of companies make when producing financial statements and those assertions are occurrence completeness accuracy cutoff and classification again very nuanced topics you can get into a lot of detail on those but simply speaking, occurrence, everything that we're representing in our financial statements actually did occur in the period we're reporting on. Completeness. Not only are we listing everything that did occur, we're also not leaving out anything that occurred, You know, making sure that they're completely representing the economic conditions of the period. Accuracy. Making sure those events and transactions and agreements are accurately represented. Cutoff are we accounting for things appropriately at the end of the marking period, at the end of the time that we should be reporting on, instead of either pushing things to a later reporting period that should not be, or bringing things forward uh, from a a subsequent reporting period that we'd like to have on the books now? And then finally, classification. Are we classifying our assets correctly on the balance sheet? Are we representing expenses appropriately on the income statement? Uh, So that's kind of some of the assertions that kick around with the financial statements as well, and are often the balance in which the commission will investigate in and, and evaluate the existence of accounting fraud, Chris.
2: I want to I want to jump in here because I think you're getting ready to pivot and talk a little bit about fraud or what we mean by a, accounting fraud. But to to tee it up, I want to invite you to talk about one of your favorite topics, which is the fraud triangle. And I know we've talked about it before, but I mean, maybe just remind our listeners. Uh, you know, I, I remember it's um, it's like pressure or motivation uh, with an opportunity to do bad things and an ability to rationalize, something like that. But maybe let's tee it up by just reminding everybody what is the fraud triangle, because I think it's a helpful construct.
1: Yeah, and it's really a theory of of conduct understood from from a white collar crime perspective. And Kurt, you you hit on all three arms of the triangle there perfectly. So I've been um, listening. But, I've been listening. If you need a refresher, uh, Kurt, you should listen to the Insecurities podcast. Um, so yeah, you've you've touched on it, right? Motivation. I have the the need, right, and and unshareable perceived need to um, you know, take, take more value than I'm being given, whether through salary or through recognition or whether through an increased stock price. I have the opportunity, right? I'm in a position to uh, add an extra journal entry at the end of the quarter or to manage uh, the way my department is run so that I can get more benefit out of it. And then finally, rationalization. I like to use the shorthand. How do you sleep at night? How do you explain it? A lot of times, criminals who are caught will say, I never meant to take that much. I was going to put it back when my financial position got better at home. I needed to pay off some short-term debts, and I was going to re- return those funds, right? So those are the three elements that are, are you know, a hypothesis for why these crimes happen. And we'll talk a little bit about those as we walk through some of these cases. And I really want to touch on two issues that lean on that opportunity perspective. Uh, classic financial statement fraud, the WorldCom and Enron's of, of our, the early 2000s, related to two you know general issues the first being materiality and the second being estimates and accruals materiality basically speaking is the level of information that an investor would find helpful in making a decision about the business obviously that's very vague but they can be both qualitative and quantitative values right and i like to use the example if you know a fortune 10 company has their earnings number off by $100 on multiple billions of dollars that's probably not going to change a single investor's idea uh, of whether or not they should purchase the stock or consider doing business with them uh, versus if that multi billion dollar earnings number is off by half a billion dollars Obviously, that's probably more material from a quantitative perspective. So, thinking materiality that way, um, on the qualitative side, disclosures are really uh, what reign supreme on materiality. Is this piece of information, say, disclosing an SEC investigation into the business, is that qualitatively material to an investor or not? I'd be hard pressed to say that an SEC investigation is not material to investors. But we'll talk a little bit more about some of the SEC statements on that uh, later in this episode. Switching over to the other element uh, that can lean into that opportunity on the fraud triangle or estimates and accruals. So, you know, most of us have have a bank account that that we operate for our household or for ourselves. It's pretty straightforward: the cash that comes in and the cash that goes out. Uh, from the business perspective, though, the accrual process is where you need to represent the values and the potential liabilities of the company while you know they exist. So, if for example, you know that you're going to sell a hundred dollars worth of product this year, but you expect some of that product to be returned uh, you know, because the customers weren't happy with it or just didn't want to purchase it anymore and were able to return it under the means of, of the contract they signed, you need to account for that potential for return today. And so companies have to estimate what they might think, how much product might be returned, or how do I think about the percentage of that $100 of product that might come back so that I'm not representing $100 of sales when I know by the end of the year, it might only be $80 of sales based on those returns. Again, a very simple example of how management's judgment has to come in to estimate those things and accrue for them appropriately when they're known. So with that, hopefully, uh, you know, my professors throughout my accounting career are happy with the 10-minute version of accounting writ large. Uh, But I want to get into, Kurt, to your point, what accounting fraud is and how it's viewed from, from a practical perspective. On its face, accounting fraud is the intentional deviation from the true nature and operations of the entity. As presented in the financial statements. So again, you've got the motivation, the rationalization, and the opportunity. Someone within the business has decided on purpose to manipulate the way that the financial statements are represented. So a few very brief examples of that. You know, obviously, a business looks better when it has more assets, more value inherent in it. Uh, increasing assets through you know inflating the value of intellectual property, uh, overestimating the goodwill. Uh, of the business or holding inventory at a at a book value that is well beyond what it could actually be sold for in the open market are all examples of how a business can increase their assets to look better and potentially be uh, in violation and, and conducting accounting fraud. On the flip side of that too is decreasing liabilities, you know, making certain payments seem not due, you know, erasing them from the business or kicking out the timing of which they are due to make your short-term prospects look better and potentially to please um, investors on Wall Street as well as potential meeting potential bank covenants that are due uh, or just to have a better uh, financial standing in the business. Also, you can think about ways that a business might purposefully underreport their success or over report their struggles to also be in an accounting fraud posture. Decreasing assets or earnings uh, can be beneficial from a valuation perspective uh, or to limit tax liability. Uh, If you say you're making less money, you'll have to pay less tax on that money. Or increasing liabilities from certain respects can also help a business that's looking to be sold or come under review to appear to be in a worse situation than they are to receive a more favorable price or a more favorable outcome from them. So two other elements that are a little bit away from the financial statement specifically. Uh, Revenue recognition, which is a big topic we've talked about a few times. And again, there's a lot of programming to to talk about it specifically. There's four elements of revenue recognition, and this Kurt will tee up some of our discussion down the road on the cases we talk about. In order to recognize revenue, Uh, A business needs to have an agreement, they need to have delivery or performance of the services that were agreed upon, they need to have a known or knowable price for those products or services, and they need to reasonably be sure that they can collect that payment. So those four elements will come into play into many allegations of improper revenue recognition, either not having an appropriate agreement, uh, not having yet delivered or performed the services, uh, not having a price that is known or knowable. And finally, you know, recognizing revenue to a business that you know to be bankrupt or, or unable to pay violates the idea of collectability. Finally, one nuance here and all of the accountants listening will, will love this we want to touch on is the changes in accounting policy note in the financial statements is a great place to start when looking for issues around accounting. A business that is constantly in flux in the way that they account for very specific and potentially very material uh, elements of their financial statements should be looked at with higher scrutiny. Um, oftentimes, a business will change accounting policy based on acquiring a new subsidiary or moving into a new market or being subject to new regulation uh, and new new guidance like uh, the lease standard 842 or revenue recognition 606. But if you look back over the past few quarters or few years of a business you're looking to invest in and you're seeing uh, lots of discussion around changes in accounting policy, be wary of where that business might be going. And with that, Kurt, I just wanted to walk through some of those issues that we see accounting fraud allegations arise from a an inappropriate accounting perspective. But where does the rubber meet the road on what they could actually be charged with and what the securities regulators are looking for from a legislative perspective? Yeah, it's a really helpful summary, Chris. And we are going to come back to a number of those
2: topics or issues when we when we talk about a couple particular cases. Um, you know I, know, I know revenue recognition is a really big one. Um, and we're going to see that in both of the cases we talk about that. I mean, that could be on some level because it almost feels a little bit like a contract law issue, whereas mm-hmm. some of the more strictly... Um, a, a, Accounting focused cases. There's there's a little bit of art to accounting, right? But it's easier when you can just say, you know, what was the agreement? Was the thing delivered? What was the what was the price? Or you know, what should we expect the price to be? Um, You know, when things are a little more tangible like that, I think they're a little easier for uh, for the staff to identify and to bring in action. That was very helpful groundwork from an accounting perspective, and talking through some of the fraud concepts. It was really an accounting one hundred and one that I think will be helpful to our listeners. And you know, kudos to you for doing it in you know about ten minutes. I think that was pretty spectacular. Let's talk a little bit though about how those concepts fit within the securities regulatory framework. And I just you know a quick disclosure up top: we're not going to get too into the the weeds here because. You know, this this can be a, a thorny topic and you get into a bunch of different you know subsections and rules, uh, you know. For example, I was looking at a case this morning that alleged violations of Section uh, 10b and Rule 10b five, um, Sections 13b two a, 13b two b, 13b five, Section 15d, and Rules 12b twenty, 15d one, 15d eleven, and 15d thirteen. Right, like it's a mouthful and it's a lot, and we're not gonna we <laughs> we're not going to we are not going to go through all of that unless uh, you know, as Chris suggested earlier, we're gonna do the twelve volume set of <laughs> of accounting fraud. Um, so So, you know, let me just say that financial disclosure and accounting have always been at the core of the SEC's regulatory mission. I mean, it's sort of fundamentally one of the things that the SEC thinks they ought to be looking at. Are companies that are required to make public disclosures, making fair and accurate disclosures to the marketplace, to investors. And they've talked about it forever, right? So when I was preparing for this episode I went back and read a speech uh, from 1954 from uh, then SEC Chairman Ralph H. Demler, and he was talking to the American Institute of Accountants. I think it really resonates with what we're focusing on today and statements that we hear from the commission still today. So uh, then Chairman Demler said, quote, Since the basic philosophy of our federal securities regulations is one of disclosure, the importance of accurate accounting information furnished under generally accepted principles is readily apparent. It is only a statement of the obvious to say that the information most determinative of the value or potential value of a security and the progress of its issuer is the financial condition of a business and the financial results of its operations." Such information can only be derived from the issuer's financial statements, accurately prepared and presented in such a manner as to be informative but concise, candid and uncolored, and disclosing every material fact necessary to make the statement not misleading. End quote. You know, I, I think if you understand what Chairman Demler said, you, you can understand the securities regulatory framework that. These accounting principles exist in. I I think if we're, if we want to talk specifically about what do the federal securities laws say about. You know, accounting or about bookkeeping. I think we would look first to the Securities Act of 1933, the so called truth in securities law, which requires the disclosure of certain information in the sale of new securities and prescribes standards for such information so that investors will know what they're getting when they buy securities. Um, And any issuer registering securities under the act also must file annual reports. These are some of the things you talked about earlier, Chris. On the other hand, we have the Exchange Act of 1934. Which provides for the filing with the SEC of basic information when a security is listed on an exchange, and for periodic reports by the issuers of, list- of listed securities thereafter. Uh, so again, it's very much focusing on uh, on transparency, on disclosure, on accuracy, and you know within the uh, within the specific rules that would apply um in your typical financial fraud and issue or disclosure case i sort of put them in in two buckets really Um, one is the the books and records and internal controls provisions and the other would be the anti-fraud provisions Uh, so i'll start with the with the books and records provisions because i think that's sort of like the upfront thing right like if you're if you're doing this right you really shouldn't have to worry about the other thing. <laughs> so, <laughs> That's a good way to say it. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, you know, there there are again. We're just going to highlight a few of the the things that you're most likely to hear about, and these are really in Section 13 of of the Securities Exchange Act. Um, so. Section 13A of the Exchange Act um, is basically where you'll find your periodic reporting requirements. You can also find periodic reporting requirements in, in Section 15. Those are for different different kinds of issuers or different kinds of companies. Um, but your most common reporting requirements are going to come in Section 13. Section 13B2A is where you find the most Prescriptive, I think, or or perhaps just the the most leaned upon uh, requirement from a books and records perspective, and it requires that issuers make and keep books, records, and accounts which, in reasonable detail, accurately and fairly reflect the transactions and dispositions of the assets of the issuer. Uh, so this you know, in in layman's speak basically says, you've got to keep clean books and records. They they need to actually reflect what's going on with your business. You know, when we think back, Chris, to when you were explaining, you know, what are assets and what are liabilities, the books and records provisions say that you need to set that stuff out accurately Mm -hmm. so that investors in the market can understand it. The next section that I want to talk about is the internal controls Provision. Um, this is also in Section 13B of the Exchange Act. Section 13B2B requires issuers to devise and maintain a system of internal accounting controls that is sufficient to provide reasonable assurances. Uh, and then there's a list of things, but uh, I'll summarize as saying. Uh, th- that you're fairly and accurately reflecting the things on your books and records,
1: right? So it's, I think it's important too to touch on internal controls generally. What is an internal control? Uh, there's no one answer to that. The language you just quoted, Kurt, is kind of the, you know, be responsible, uh, you know, act like an adult when when managing a company. An example of an internal control might be regular review of of bank reconciliations to ensure that the assets of the business are being accurately recorded or requiring a second level review of specific financial disclosures so that you get multiple inputs and, and multiple review of the same understanding to ensure that the process is robust and well controlled internally, hence an internal control, uh, to make sure that financial reporting is accurate. Yeah,
2: I, I completely agree. Look, this is one that, you know, from the perspective of, you know, a securities enforcement defense attorney, you can spend a lot of time arguing in this space, and that is often about, you know, the sufficiency of the controls or whether or not they provide reasonable assurances that, you know, the folks responsible for maintaining the books and records are, are doing it right. Because it's one thing to have your policies and procedures, you know, on the shelf, and you can point to them and say, hey, look, it's there – we had policies and procedures or internal controls provisions that say we're supposed to do this the right way. The question is, are you doing it? You know, are you implementing it appropriately? Is it working, right? So Chris, you're right. You know, periodic reviews, periodic internal reviews is a good example of a control that you might design and implement to make sure that you're getting it right. But if you're not actually doing the reviews, right, if your policies and procedures say, we're going to do quarterly or or annual reviews to make sure that our systems are really clicking, but you don't do it, you're never going to be able to lean on that if something goes wrong, or to you right. know, sort of absolve yourself of liability if something goes wrong. Uh, so it, it really is an an interesting space, right? You know, the books and records piece again is sort of core to the SEC's mission, and as I said, there's a little bit of art to accounting, so there may be some some room. To argue about whether or not you got it right from an accounting perspective. The internal controls piece, I, I think, is where we end up arguing a lot more of the time. You know, what was the company doing to avoid the problem? And then so I uh, just one more section in 13 that we're going to talk about quickly. Uh, and that that's 13B5, which basically says that no person shall knowingly circumvent or fail to implement a system of internal accounting controls. So this is sort of the other side of the coin we're talking about when it comes to internal accounting controls you know one is like do you have it and again we can argue about the things i've been talking about and two is if not, did you know you didn't have it? Were you were you avoiding it? What was the problem? We we see some of that. We're gonna see that in one of the cases we talk about, where you know, an executive really he he knew or he should have known what was going on, right? And he kind of just didn't do anything about it. So it's another potential hook for SEC enforcement when they're looking at a company's books and records. So those are the books and records and internal controls provisions. Like I said, I've got two buckets. So bucket two is the anti-fraud provisions, and this is you know when it all goes wrong. In keeping with the you know the sort of disclosure framework generally, we've got you know the two acts that we really need to look at here: the Securities Act and the Exchange Act. They both have broad anti-fraud provisions that read pretty similarly, and I think you know, for all intents and purposes from a, a financial accounting and disclosure perspective, we can think of them as, as pretty much the same, certainly for purposes of our conversation today. And they are, the Securities Act provisions are section 17A2 and 17A3. The Exchange Act provisions are section 10B and of course rule 10B5 there under. And essentially what they do is prohibit any person or issuer uh, from directly or indirectly obtaining money or property by means of any untrue statement of material fact or any omission of a material fact uh, that in, this, in the circumstances would make a statement not misleading. Uh, essentially, what it says is thou shall not lie in, in your public disclosures, right? Um, Seems pretty
1: basic, yeah.
2: I mean, it, it really is. Uh, you know, again, it's an area where, where you can have some disagreement with the staff. And some of these cases, they're really technical, right? And and so you can talk about whether or not it was material, whether or not an omission was uh, made a statement misleading, right? I mean, you can argue around some of the requirements of the rule. But again, for purposes of today's discussions, at a high level, you just have to get your disclosures right. You've got to be accurate and complete. You've got to be forthcoming so that the market knows about your financial health, about how you're doing. They can look at your balance sheet and understand, is this company doing well or not? Where where are the risks or concerns? So I, I think those are sort of the core uh, securities regulatory provisions or securities uh, laws that I, that I wanted to touch on, you know. I just want to point out that there are some other places where you might find accounting related or disclosure related provisions that would bear on this conversation. We're not going to go into them all. You know, places like Reg SK or the FCPA have some very specific accounting related requirements. So, you know, just when we talk about the books and records and internal controls provisions in the 33 Act and the 34 Act, when we talk about the anti-fraud provisions in the 33 Act and the 34 Act, you know, that, that's not the entire landscape. But that's where the majority of the financial accounting and disclosure cases you see are going to land. So that's what we're going to focus on today.
1: That's right, and, and Kurt, I love the way you talked about kind of the the two phases of information. Right, if if you're doing your best to make sure that your books and records are accurate, it's going to be hard to be identified as violating the anti fraud provisions. But yeah. just thinking about the the case you talked about, rolling through whatever thirteen or fourteen different elements of, of <laughs> violations that are charged, if you don't keep a good uh, set of books and records, and you're being fraudulent, I am always amazed at the the number of sections that are referenced in the charging documents for for a lot of these because uh, uh, they're they. they Do overlap and they do cover uh, unique spots in in both acts as well as a lot of the other regulations over financial information. But uh, it feels like the the sky is falling uh, when you read some of these from from the SEC's perspective.
2: I think that's right, and I mean some of this is a perception thing with the staff, and you know we're going to talk a little bit about this later in terms of how how does the SEC view this generally from an enforcement perspective, you know, but. One of the things that we recently heard, again, Chris, we were at the Securities Enforcement Conference earlier in the week, um, was Melissa Hodgman, who's an Associate Director in the SEC's Division of Enforcement. She must have said five times during her remarks, this is not a gotcha game. Yeah. Uh, we are not trying to second guess uh, internal audit or external auditors. The purpose is not to catch you doing something wrong and then impose our judgment you know, for yours. And I think that's right. I I mean, I really do. She said, what we're looking for are good faith efforts to get it right. But I think, to your point, Chris— once you lose faith with the uh, enforcement staff in particular, there can be this cascading effect where some of these nuanced or overlapping rules land in an enforcement action. And next thing you know, you, 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 know, you have been alleged to have violated six different rule subsections um, yeah. <laughs> because you got something wrong and maybe it's one thing wrong. So, uh, I, I think it's an important note and, and something we need to think about as we start to
1: talk about a couple of these cases. Yeah, so diving into the cases, I want to just bring up one other concept that I like to think about accounting fraud from, and and noting all of the regulations and all of the elements we just talked about, accounting is a zero-sum game, right? It's very easy to have the appropriate documentation, review, and reporting around transactions with customers that actually exist, right? You'll have the paperwork, you'll be able to prove the revenue, you'll be able to account for the expenses it is very difficult to replace any one of those elements or all of those elements in the terms of fabricating things when conducting accounting fraud. And so we'll talk a bit about an an action that the SEC brought in September of last year. They settled on September 16th with Marvell Technology Group, uh, who agreed to pay $5.5 million to settle charges that it misled investors when it engaged in an undisclosed revenue management scheme in order to meet publicly issued revenue guidance. So right off the top, the SEC is identifying a a number of our fraud triangle elements, right? They're motivated to meet those publicly issued revenue guidance statements. Getting into some of the details of the Marvell case, as told in the SEC settlement order, Marvell in 2015 had consistently missed Wall Street expectations around their earnings. Management at the time did not feel that they were performing appropriately and started to instill sales targets for their groups internally to increase and be more aggressive in the market. Uh, This- I'll pause here before I get into more of the details. Uh, I mean, if your red flag sensor isn't going off yet, then uh, you should listen to some more uh, of our insecurities <laughs> yeah, podcast. But absolutely. anytime management is arbitrarily deciding what sales uh, goals should be for their staff, you're, you're wading into some troubled waters there. As a function of the sales staff's response to that, they considered and developed, and and actually, I'm, I'm a little bit impressed with the way they documented, uh, a scheme of what they called using pull-ins at quarter end. So pulling in revenue from a subsequent quarter, you have an agreement with a customer to provide them with specific products in on a monthly basis or on a quarterly basis that you know of ahead of time. Uh, in this case, Marvel's business is in um, software storage and data management, uh, and so what they would do with this pull-in scheme was identify those. Customer orders to be delivered in the early parts of the subsequent quarter. So when they're coming to quarter two, they look ahead a little bit in quarter three and say, "Okay, on the tenth of the month we we will be delivering you know a thousand units to this customer. On the fifteenth of the month, we'll be shipping you know two thousand units to that customer." And what they would do is they would ship those units early and pull that revenue into the prior quarter, into the quarter they're reporting on, which, as we talked about up front, violates a handful of assertions around the financial statements, right? The cutoff period obviously here is being violated, uh, as well as revenue recognition. They're purposefully delivering products ahead of schedule so that they can recognize the revenue ahead of time. So This scheme actually went on for two or three quarters in the 2015-2016 time period for which Marvell attempted to meet analysts' expectations. With that, however, internally at Marvell, the financial reporting team and the sales team segregated out the revenue that they were pulling in on a quarterly basis. And, and the SEC goes on in their settlement order uh, to talk about some of the internal emails around not being able to meet future forecasts due to this scheme. We talked about how accounting is a zero-sum game. If you pull that 1,000-unit order you know, from the 10th day of, of the second quarter back into the first quarter... Obviously, you can't re-recognize that revenue again in the second quarter, so you're starting to dig yourself a hole here that's very hard to get out of. And and management and the financial reporting staff at Marvell were smart enough to know that they should track that problem and be able to identify that problem going forward. However, Kurt, as you talked about with the books and records provision, it seems like they kept a very good accounting Uh, No pun intended, of the pull in (laughs) issue. But from an anti fraud perspective, they never went around and corrected it. You know, pull in um, accounting like this is sometimes warranted based on specific customer relationships or specific types of products that are being delivered or services. And in those cases, the kind of get out of jail card related to something that seems to be a violation is to disclose it, right? If this is your accounting policy to capture, you know, say it takes you 10 days to ship something and it's due on the fifth of the month to the customer you could make the argument that that revenue should be accounted you know, on a shipping date of being five days before the end of the month or the end of the quarter. Again, the way to get around any violation here would be to disclose that. In this case, management and the financial reporting staff at Marvell kept a very good accounting of this issue internally and did not disclose it to investors. And so we saw numerous quarters in which revenue is is alleged to be inflated uh, to meet those analysts' expectations, and the fact that there was no disclosure around that is really where the SEC held held Marvel separate and apart from those other situations as as a violation in the accounting fraud space. Two things I want to pick up on
2: there, and these are you know sort of practitioners' points, if you will. I mean. Broadly, I think the issues that you're talking about, you know, we're going to see, frankly, in the other case we want to talk about today. We see in a lot of cases coming out of the SEC over the last couple of years because I think, as you've discussed before, as you told us today, Chris, you know, revenue recognition is something that the SEC enforcement staff is really focused on because I think that they, you know, they're of a view that if you're doing that improperly, you are not giving investors an accurate view of the company's financial health. And they are all about protecting investors right? so if they think you're lying to investors they're gonna they're gonna ding you um you know with respect to some of the practices that we saw in the marvell case in particular i mean one i agree with you when it comes to disclosures you know you can't solve everything by disclosure but you can solve a lot of things by disclosures and if you're telling your investors if you're telling the sec what you're doing and you do it consistently with your disclosures you're going to be in a lot better shape than if you're sort of doing stuff, you know, in the shadows. Yes. Number two, emails, you know, it's (laughs) so many times you see these cases break around an email and whether it plainly shows some kind of bad intent or whether it's just inartfully worded. So many of these cases, there's an email from an executive or a senior salesperson or an Mm -hmm. internal accounting person that either state outright or imply that like we've got to meet X number or we have to hit this sales target or we need to make sure that we are satisfying market expectations. Anytime you have an email like that, it's going to be really difficult for you to argue that accounting is an art and not a science and, you know, reasonable minds may differ. Particularly if you if you don't have disclosures, right? If you have an email that says, we, we need to think about pull-ins here to make sure, you know, we're looking good on revenue this quarter, but what you're doing from an accounting perspective is not consistent with what you've disclosed. Like you're, you're going to be in a world of hurt. Uh, so anyway, those are sort of my practitioner's takeaways from the yeah.
1: Marvell case. And two other elements I want to touch on with Marvell. If you actually read the settlement order, there's a great footnote number two, and I just want to read it verbatim because I think it really speaks to those issues. It's so like an accountant to focus on the footnotes, but go on. (laughs) Quote, Marvell's revenue recognition policy contained a section pertaining to pull-ins, which was not publicly disclosed, that defined a pull-in as a transaction where Marvell initiates and obtains agreement from customer to modify an existing sales order scheduled shipment date from a subsequent quarter into the current quarter. The policy required formal tracking of pull-in transactions, end quote. So again, you're seeing that, you, know, Kurt, you referenced a good faith uh, argument or actor uh, when approaching the commission about accounting fraud. We're seeing here that they literally had it written down in their internal documents, uh, something that would have been material for investors to review based on their quarterly reporting uh, that just wasn't made public. And then secondarily, you say, okay, it sounds like they did this with a few transactions. From a materiality perspective, the pull-ins actually had a significant effect on their revenue reporting. For the quarters in question, the pull-in revenue accounted for $24 million and $64 million of those total quarterly revenues, or 5% and 16% of revenue for that management's uh, segment reporting. So again, 16% is is beyond the pale in terms of what you might think would be material from a quantitative perspective. And you see here that significant activity related to pull-ins made Marvell look better. And that's where you could see the SEC coming down on them pretty hard related to to an accounting fraud issue. Let's pivot and
2: talk about the second case, which I think has a lot of the same characteristics, frankly, as the Marvell case. Um, we want to talk about Supermicro. So this, is, I mean, I already like it. It's got a it's got a great name. Um, in, August, in August of this year, in August 2020, the SEC settled enforcement actions against Supermicro Computer Inc., a producer of computer servers, and the company's current and former CEOs. In that action, the SEC alleged that the company, with, uh, with, with knowing participation or at least with the knowledge of its top executives, prematurely recognized revenue and understated expenses for three years. The facts that the SEC uh, uncovered during the course of their investigation were that super micro executives, including the, the former CEO, encouraged or, or pressured employees to maximize end-of-quarter revenue and minimize expenses – without devising and maintaining sufficient internal accounting controls to record revenue and expenses in conformity with GAAP. As a result of those accounting practices, the the orders found that Supermicro improperly and prematurely recognized revenue, including by recognizing revenue on goods that it sent to warehouses before they were delivered to customers, by shipping goods to customers without or before they received customer authorization, and by shipping incomplete or misassembled goods to customers. Uh, You know, there's actually a pretty long description of the facts here, you know, but essentially they were shipping things at inappropriate times so that they could record the revenue. The order also finds that Supermicro improperly underreported certain expenses by misusing a cooperative marketing program, which allowed customers to seek reimbursement for a portion of cooperative marketing costs. Uh, According to the order, Supermicro improperly reduced the liabilities accrued for the program in order to repay, essentially to avoid recognizing, a variety of expenses that were completely unrelated to marketing such as product repair costs, expenses for Christmas gifts, and to store goods. So, you know, again, they're sort of – they're using this program that they might actually use appropriately – to reduce their expenses, but they're applying it to categories of expenses that they shouldn't at times when they shouldn't in order to, to bring down, to underreport their expenses. Uh, so, so there was a lot going on in this case. We have improper revenue recognition. We have um, improper understating of expenses. The, the result was a settled action where the SEC alleged that Supermicro violated Section 1782 and 1783 of the Securities Act and the reporting and books and records and internal accounting provisions of the Exchange Act, and they agreed to pay a $17.5 million penalty to settle the case. You know, I think, Chris, look, when you read the order, there's a lot of interesting and nuanced conduct that was going on here in terms of just how they were shipping, how they were accounting for their their shipments and and revenue. Uh, You know, on some level, whenever I read these cases, I feel like they're sort of variations on a theme. You know, for me, like one of the very first cases I worked on when I started practicing law was the, uh, was the Adelphia case. And it, it was at its core, an accounting case. And it was it's so much like supermicro you know in that case i know you know it too chris but they were uh, you know adelphia was essentially uh, shipping what they called set top boxes cable boxes mm-hmm. to warehouses and recognizing revenue from that when those boxes weren't actually going out to customers. I mean, it's it's the same thing we have going on here. And I think here it feels like maybe there were actually customer orders pending out there somewhere and they were just shipping them early. But it's the same kind of thing. Like, hey, just send it to the warehouse. It's not going to the customer yet, but yeah, it's, it's away from us. Uh, so we're going to put that on our balance sheet. It's a variation on a theme. I, I don't know. Am I oversimplifying, Chris, or do, do you get that sense when you read some of these orders?
1: Yeah, I mean, especially in the super microcomputer case, I think they've got you know almost everything but the kitchen sink in terms of the ways they attempted to increase revenue uh, on a short-term basis. You know, inventory sales are always interesting, and, and I like to kind of use the the spectrum to talk about them. You know, shipping to the warehouse kind of falls uh, a little bit towards the middle, but uh, you know, we've seen in in the past few years and back in in accounting fraud lore uh, over time, you know, instances where if you have a customer agreement that says the customer takes. Liability consideration of the products as soon as they leave your facility. You know, an FOB shipping point is, is the accounting term for that. We've seen companies abuse that notion by loading up a truck with a bunch of servers and driving the truck from the loading dock of the facility to the end of the street and just parking it there. <laughs> and that is the they say well it left it left the facility right it's fob shipping point so we shipped it out and that usually happens on the 28th 29th 30th day of the month uh, to get that out there so in that case obviously it's it's easy to identify you know non good faith conduct there but on the other side too like we talked about a little bit with the pullins on the Marvell case you know there are instances in which some of these things might be a little bit closer to economic reality and appropriate accounting than not uh super microcomputer i mean the the order actually goes through what I like to call an eight points bulletin of all of the ways in which they inflated revenue. Uh, And so with these schemes, Kurt, I think the through line you're drawing is accurate. You're seeing the abuse of the relationships that exist, uh, as well as potentially relationships that don't exist coming out as as a way for them to recognize revenue. And, And like we talk about with the zero sum theory, it's hard for the company to rely on financial information that they can't prove exists or recurred, So they look to current customer relationships, standing orders, and how they can tweak the elements of that, how they can pull the levers back and forth to get a little bit more into this quarter so that they can get the analysts or the bankers off their back uh, until next quarter.
2: I like how we're sort of trying to telescope out a little bit and talk about what are the themes that tend to run through a bunch of these cases. Good to talk about the fact patterns of a of a couple cases in particular. But yeah, you know, what what is it that we see in so many of these cases? And it's it's essentially the things that we've been talking about all day, which are how can we take steps to improve our financial picture uh, or at least make it look better. Um, so that the market reacts well or investors want to invest or or because we want to IPO and, and we need to make sure that our financial picture looks looks right for underwriters or for whomever. Um, that that seems to be what we see in so many of these cases. You know, a lot of that goes to back to the fraud triangle triangle goes to the motivation or the mm-hmm. pressure. Right, Um, and then then it's figuring out you know where's the opportunity to do that. That's the nitty gritty. You know what is the particular. Accounting, a I guess I'll say technique <laughs> that they use <laughs> to try to paint a better picture, and then how do they rationalize it? Um, and sometimes, you know, that, that there's the slippery slope that you that you hinted at earlier. You know, like, look, I, I meant to do this for a quarter, or I only was was going to slide this over temporarily because I needed to get past some hurdle. And, and when you put it together, it's just sort of like a vicious cycle, and we see it again and again. So I, I think while we're sort of zooming out. Chris, why, why don't you tell us a little bit about how the SEC is thinking about accounting fraud
1: now? What are they focusing on? I took away from from recent speeches, one of my new favorite phrases, uh, monitoring versus managing. And this was a discussion we saw at a securities enforcement conference this year, in which Associate Director for Enforcement, Hodgman, talked about how management reacts or tracks Wall Street's expectations. So, the the picture was cast of of a company meeting Wall Street targets uh, over over a number of periods and the idea behind managing versus monitoring is that a company management that monitors Wall Street expectations is taking note of those expectations but those are not influencing the conduct the accounting the ways in which the business is being operated to make sure they make those numbers obviously managing is the other side of that coin where a CEO, a CFO will look to Wall Street to understand what expectations are, then turn back around to the business and say, hey, guys, we need to make this happen. How do we do it? How do we get to X dollars of earnings per share so that the analysts are happy and the stock price goes up, right? When the analyst expectation starts influencing your decision-making, that's when you start to bleed into the, the managing side. So managing earnings is a hot button phrase uh, across enforcement ideas, uh, both today and and dating uh, back decades. And that's the idea that management is actively participating in cooking the books, for lack of a better phrase, to make sure that their earnings are fluid or meeting expectations over the time period. We like to look back at some of the more famous cases in which businesses try to smooth their earnings out over quarter to quarter or year over year to show that kind of lockstep 5%, 10% you know, growth over that time period. Uh, it's usually never that smooth, uh, and that's where you need to look to that financial information to underpin that. So uh, we talked a bit about management's estimates uh, up at the top, and that's really where the CEO, the CFO, other leaders at a company are able to make decisions around accounting judgments that could influence those earnings, right? So for example, we talked a bit about you know $100 of revenue being sold for products and then needing to account for the reserve uh, of potential returns. So if over the past five years, you've had $20 worth of returns every year, it would make a lot of sense to accrue for $20 of potential returns in this year. But if you need an extra $10 of revenue to meet the earnings per share guidance from Wall Street, a manager might say, you know what, this year, I think our products are a lot better. So we'll probably only get $10 of revenue return. Uh, and and Associate Director Hodgman was very focused on, explain to us the process for why you changed an accounting policy, or why an accrual was different, or why an estimate was was trained was changed in the reporting period, and it may make sense. And her focus was on the process. Show me how it was set up before you made the decision. Show me how the decision you made about accruing for again in this example, uh, returns on products uh, was made at the time, and then show me how that was tracked throughout the period. Right. And I think one of the other final uh, comments from the associate director, as well as the commission generally, is. We're not upset at you if you're wrong, right? If you believe you're going to have $20 worth of returns and it turns out to be 40, as long as the information and the decision making that went into that $20 accrual makes sense at the time, there's not going to be a Monday morning quarterbacking to untreat you fairly about being incorrect about the statements that were being made so i think that's a big drumbeat at the commission and, and we've heard that a lot in probably the past 18 months kurt but how else have, have you heard the sec talk about some of these issues well i want to touch on a on a couple points and i mean i just i'll say this
2: uh, with respect to associate director hodgman's remarks you know she she did sort of drop in there this note where she said listen this might sound trite but so much of this is about documentation and you hear documentation documentation from the sec on a number of fronts all the time but she's right, you know. It, keep a record. Explain why you did it. Disclose it to your investors. You know. I, I mean, again, this is a theme that I think should come through this episode. But if if you're telling people what you're doing or what you're going to do, and you do it that way, and you can explain why you did it, you're going to be in a much better position than if it appears that you're doing something suddenly differently or you know, inappropriately. So uh, you know, a couple things. One is I just want to point out that there are a couple sort of accounting related or tangential issues that I think are sort of bubbling up or, or that we should note for purposes of this episode. You know, one is, I, I, talked it, I talked about it a little bit up top, but that is just, you know, how the FCPA plays in this space. Uh, and if you want to know more, go back to episode nine. We talked extensively about what the FCPA is with Dean Jessica Tillipman from GW Law and Professor Andrew Spalding from University of, of Richmond School of Law. Uh, but essentially, in addition to sections in the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act that prohibit people from bribing foreign officials, There are accounting provisions that say you need to have, you know, clean and accurate books and records. And it has become the case increasingly over time that most FCPA cases now read as accounting or controls cases. I think it's because, you know, look, it's really hard to prove the bribe sometimes mm-hmm. because it happens in another country or it happens through a third party or just sort of away from the company. But, you know, the question is, how are your expenses Recorded. And we've joked about this before, right? Like, you, you're probably not going to have a line item that says, like, you know,
1: $50,000 in suitcase cash. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Money for bribes is not a common general ledger uh, account.
2: Right. But, um, you know, if, if what you're doing is sort of booking things as travel or entertainment or whatever, it needs to be done accurately. Um, and if there are things, if there are expenses happening in your organization that don't fit within the framework, like maybe that's when your controls ought to kick in and say, Hey, what's actually happening here? What are they, what are we spending money on? So anyway, I just, you know, it's sort of a side note, but a lot of FCPA cases now look like accounting cases. So we have this interesting overlap. Another point I want to make is with respect to uh, the SEC versus Lou case, which, which we've talked an awful lot about, and everybody's still talking a lot about, um, but it had to do with whether or not the SEC may seek a disgorgement remedy in federal district court. And the answer, of course, was yes, subject to certain limitations. And I think they bear a lot on accounting, maybe not on the front end in terms of you know, what do a company's books and records say, but when you're later looking back at potential misconduct conduct. What Lou says is the SEC can only seek disgorgement if they are going to take that money and use it to make harmed investors whole. And so there are a couple important limitations that sort of spring from that. One is that in calculating the amount of disgorgement, they can really only look for the ill-gotten gains, right? What was the benefit to the company or individuals from the misconduct? And calculating that can be difficult sometimes. Uh, And that sort of plays right into the second point, which is, you know, they've said that in doing that, you need to back out any legitimate business expenses. And in the Lou case itself, there were a lot of questions about how the defendants were spending money. You know, what were legitimate travel expenses for the purpose of marketing or trying to sell, you know, their goods and services? If they're legitimate, they are not ill-gotten gains. So again, this is not squarely within the things that we're talking about today. But I, I mean, I do think it's it's important. It's a place where the SEC is going to focus. It, it's a place where good folks like my buddy Chris are going to be doing work in the coming years.
1: So uh, something else I, I wanted to note. I don't know, Chris, do you have thoughts on that before I move to my last point? Yeah, I think that there's you know, we've, we've talked about the quality of information here, right? And, and that's from from the first discussion of assets at the top of the episode, all the way through the, the cases we've talked about, relates to are we representing economic reality accurately? And in both examples you just provided, Kurt, from the FCPA, as well as Lou, the SEC is interested in that economic reality almost to a fault, right? From the Lou side, it's, hey, guys, if, if we see an issue that we think you guys have defrauded, uh, you know, a group of investors, come to us with a proposal for why some of that might have been legitimate show us the actual economic reality that happened. And we'll consider that as we look to, to potentially penalize and disgorge you uh, for your bad activity. So from that point, I think that, uh, you know, the, the quality of accounting information, you know, rings true through all the examples we've touched on. I completely agree. Um, and look, I think my, my last
2: point, uh, Chris, you, you quoted Director Avakian up top. And I think what she said is, that, you know, the SEC's division of enforcement has a sharp focus on issuer disclosure and financial fraud issues. And yes, I mean, so this is sort of a word of caution for public companies, for accountants, for lawyers in this space. This is and will continue to be an area where SEC enforcement is focused, where they are allocating resources, whether that is manpower or you know, technology to try to find these these problems. And it, it's not new. My point is that, if anything, it's going to become more pronounced. So, if we go back, you know, again, I, I mentioned Ceresny's speech earlier on in the episode. When Ceresny was the director of enforcement, uh, accounting and disclosure cases comprised about 16% of the SEC's enforcement cases every year. Last year, they were about 17.5% of the cases that they brought last year, and it tends to float in that range, right? Somewhere between like 16 and 20% every year. That's not gonna change. That means almost every year you can expect somewhere between like 85 and 100 just purely accounting or disclosure types of cases you got to be on your game in this in this space because it it, it again it's not going to change and in fact i think we might see more of it going forward as a result of the covid-19 pandemic i think a lot of companies right now are, are really struggling with accounting because you know market volatility because it's difficult to make predictions about you know what what is revenue going to look like next month let alone next quarter or the next half i think there is just a lot of room for folks to, to get it wrong. Unfortunately, there's a lot of opportunity for folks to fudge it, to, to paint a better picture than is the reality of their company's financial health because they don't want to disappoint the market or they don't want to disappoint investors or because they're, you know, they're hoping for some kind of business loan, whatever the case may be. So I think, we're, I think we're going to see a lot of that going forward.
1: Yeah. And accounting information works best in periods of certainty. And, and obviously we are not in a period of certainty by any means. Uh, and we'll see some of those issues play out in the coming years. But I wanted to touch on one last thought. you know accounting cases uh, from the SEC usually fall in a similar pattern to some of the sweeps and other enforcement things we've talked about on the podcast is relating to specific issues. you know if you look back at you know the early 2010s, you see a lot of cases around the valuation and accounting for mortgage-backed securities right? in in the fallout of the financial crisis. Prior to that, you also saw a significant amount of activity looking at stock options backdating uh, for executives, which uh, to wit, Marvell was actually uh, settled a a matter uh, related to that in May of 2008. So completely separate issue, but the commission continually looking at kind of the market to see what what elements might be uh, on the fringe or or developing from an accounting perspective that might be ripe for some of those errors and then potentially for someone to intentionally take advantage of those to improve the reporting of their position. And, you know, we talk a little bit about some of the cases here. You know, I've got a a stable of war stories to share, but uh, without getting too much into it, I mean, some of the items that we see from an accounting fraud perspective are, I use this this phrase tongue-in-cheek, brilliant right? The schemes and the abilities that, that some of these folks have to manipulate the financial information. You know, I always use, use the idea that if you guys had just applied yourself in pushing the business to, to act appropriately and, and gave that brilliance to another metric or another way that, that you could improve the business, you guys would have shot to the moon. But you spend all of your time you know, creating false invoices and setting up fake email accounts to pretend to be customers that are emailing in asking for more orders or for them to be delivered faster. I mean, the level of effort here to overcome that zero-sum factor of accounting fraud is just startling. Uh, and I'm often you know, a little bit discouraged by the amount of, of activity and focus that some of these fraudsters put into to manipulating the numbers. So like you said, Kurt, it's been here for a while and it's not going away anytime soon. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Insecurities Podcast. As always, we want to hear from you regarding your thoughts, comments, and topics for future discussions on episodes of Insecurities. Please use the hashtag InsecuritiesPod on Twitter or LinkedIn to join the conversation. You can find me at Ekimoff CPA, And I'm at Enforce underscore update. Be well, everyone, and we'll see you next time.
2: Thanks for tuning in.
0: Thanks for listening to Insecurities, a podcast from PLI, the Practicing Law Institute. PLI is a nonprofit provider of authoritative professional services training and continuing education. In an increasingly complex business environment where intricate corporate structures reign, Insecurities can help you make sense of it all. A special thanks goes to the producer of Insecurities, Daniel Pinitz, as well as hosts Chris Ekimoff and Kurt Wolf. For more information about PLI's SEC Institute, or to view hundreds of hours of fresh and relevant on-demand programming covering changes within the security sector, visit pli.edu membership and sign up for a privileged membership. These recorded materials are designed for educational purposes only. This podcast does not constitute legal, audit, tax, consulting, business, financial, investment, or other professional advice, and it does not create an attorney-client relationship please consult a qualified professional advisor before taking any action based on the information herein. Furthermore, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individual participants. These views are not the views of the hosts or their employers. Users of this podcast may save and use the podcast only for personal or other non-commercial educational purposes. No other use, including without limitation, reproduction, retransmission, or editing of this podcast may be made without the prior written permission from PLI.